If you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, you'll know we've been doing a series in Matthew's Gospel. We're going to pause that now as we've reached a natural break uh, in the, the way Matthew tells that story. And in the run-up to Christmas, we're going to look at some characters uh, all involved in that first Christmas, all involved in the Nativity story. Uh, today it's Joseph, so we're going to read from Matthew 1 and verse 18. Matthew 1 and verse 18. That's probably worth saying that as we look at the different figures in the nativity scene, we're, we're not looking primarily at them, but at them as they point uh, to Christ. So Matthew 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Uh, it's a familiar story, isn't it? In fact, the story of the first Christmas must be one of the most well-known stories uh, in all of history. And yet it contains elements that are slightly strange to us. Uh, so what I want to do is walk through the story uh, and then see how it is that Joseph points us both to what it means to be a disciple and also to what God is doing uh, that first Christmas. So let's start with Joseph the disciple. Joseph the disciple. Uh, the story begins uh, with Mary and Joseph engaged, verse 18. Uh, verse 18, when Mary, his mother, had been betrothed. Betrothed children is just a, an old-fashioned word for engaged. Now, in their day, uh, to become engaged to someone wasn't like in our day. In our day, uh, to, to become engaged to someone just means you, you promised you're going to marry them. But it's not a binding promise. Okay? Lots of people have been engaged and then broken off that engagement. Uh, but in the days of Mary and Joseph, uh, they were bound together. In that sense, it's a bit like when you buy a house. Uh, you'll know many of you who bought houses. Uh, that in England, at least, that the way that works uh, is, first of all, you exchange okay, and you promise to buy a house. And then you only complete, uh, well, a few weeks or months later. But at that first stage, you are contractually bound in. And to walk away at that stage, well, brings severe repercussions. Uh, at the stage Mary and Joseph are at in our story, the groom's father would have paid a price. It would have been a price paid. And that's why they're considered husband and wife. So in verse 19, although they're not yet married, Joseph is called Mary's husband. That's also why in verse 19, he resolves to divorce her. Now, again, in our culture, if you're engaged, you don't divorce, do you? Because you're not yet married. But things work very differently back then. They weren't living together, of course. Uh, that second stage, that completion, if you like, hadn't yet happened. But they were bound together. And that's why uh, Joseph needs an exit strategy. Uh, Mary, verse 18, is found to be with child. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And now, according to the, the laws of the Old Testament, uh, if you're uh, engaged bride, 
uh, is found to be unfaithful, then she's committed adultery and would come under the, the full force of the law. But Joseph decides to be merciful. But, but notice, notice what Joseph is thinking here. Joseph is thinking what you'd expect any young man to be thinking when his young, probably teenage bride-to-be becomes pregnant. To put it another way, Joseph is not thinking when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, oh, well, well this must be the Son of God come to earth. Uh, this will be the Word of God become flesh. Uh, the one who is of uh, one nature with the Father become incarnate in the womb of my girlfriend. No. Joseph thinks, well, Joseph thinks that he needs to just quietly split with Mary, put her away. Uh, it's important when we read the Bible, when we read the scriptures, uh, that we don't uh, engage in kind of historical snobbery. Uh, you often get this when, when people critique the Bible. Perhaps you're new to Christian things or sceptical about Christian things. Uh, and as you read the New Testament or, or as you hear about the things that Christians believe, uh, it seems incredible to you. Uh, that we in the 21st century uh, would believe the same things as they seemed to believe back then. Uh, how in the 21st century, the era, era of smartphones and smart TVs and electric cars, how can you believe that a man can walk on water? How can you believe that a man could turn water into wine? How can you believe a man could come back from the dead? How could you believe a virgin becomes pregnant? Surely there are better explanations of a pregnant virgin. Uh, yes, you say, uh, back then they were credulous, they were gullible, they fell for these sort of things, but now we know better. But but that is chronological snobbery, isn't it? Historical snobbery. Do, do you really think people in the first century thought that people could walk on water? Do, do you really think they expected people to come back from the dead? Do you really think Joseph thought, ha, huh, my fiancé has become pregnant through the Holy Spirit, bringing God's son to earth? Joseph knows how teenage girls become pregnant. That's why he wants to divorce her. This has always been a miracle that needs receiving by faith. And at this stage, uh, verse 18, verse 19, Joseph doubts. He's not doubting God because he hasn't heard anything from God at this stage. He, he just doubts that Mary has been faithful. Until the announcements come. Verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, the angel comes to him in a dream. Now, uh, Christians uh, sometimes nowadays think that God speaks to them through dreams. And frankly, that is usually a very unhelpful thing uh, to think. But here is made overwhelmingly clear to Joseph that this is God speaking to him through an angel in his dream. We don't know how the certainty came, but came it did. Uh, and he's reassured that this child that Mary is carrying is, well, the son of God. It is the Holy Spirit who has... Uh, enable this child uh, to form in Mary's womb. Now, we're not going to think much about the, the virgin birth this week because we'll come back to it uh, in future weeks. Uh, what I want to think uh, about instead is, well, is Joseph's reaction. Uh, when Joseph, verse 24, woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amazingly, Joseph accepts uh, this news from the angel. He wakes, 
Uh, he marries Mary, uh, but doesn't sleep with her uh, until, well, until Christ is born. It's an astonishing thing to think that Joseph accepted this news via the dream, via the angel, from God. Uh, in this sense, I think Joseph already, right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, is an example of a disciple to us. He's a picture of what discipleship is going to look like. Uh, he shows us the surprise of faith, first of all, the surprise of faith. Uh, Joseph is told to find God in the most unexpected place. Uh, we read that, uh, verse 23, uh, 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 the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Where is God with us? Uh, at this stage in the story, God is with us, God is on earth, in the womb of a probably teenage girl. Men and women in those days got married much younger than they do uh, in our culture, typically. Uh, Mary may well have been only 14-ish years old. Where, where is God at this stage? Or where is God to be found on earth? In the womb of Mary. Now, it doesn't mean that at the same time, God wasn't, as he always uh, is, uh, present everywhere. It doesn't mean that, that God has somehow restricted himself and confined himself to Mary's womb, as if he wasn't also ruling the universe. No, the Son of God had added to himself this human nature, become a real human child in Mary's womb. Again, we'll come back to, to what that means and how that works in future weeks. But for now, just focus on Joseph's reaction. How, how would you react? What do you think is going through his mind when he hears that his fiance? It is pregnant with the Son of God. Of course, it's not what he expects. And yet, the word of God is enough to, to, uh, to enable him to trust that this is how God is going to come into the world. Joseph, we read earlier, is a righteous man. He is presumably a believing man. Uh, he's someone who knows the Old Testament, knows the scriptures. He knows that one day God will come. And this is how it's going to happen. And we're a week early, really, starting these Christmas series. But next week, next Sunday, traditionally is known as, as the first Sunday uh, of Advent. And Advent is a season uh, in the church that, that is probably the, the most understood of all. Uh, we think Advent is all about getting ready for Christmas, as if it's a countdown to Christmas Day. That's why we have uh, Advent calendars counting down until the day we can open our presents. But actually, Advent is all about expecting Jesus. It's looking forward to Jesus coming into the world. And of course, for us, Jesus coming into the world it is not about actually Bethlehem and the manger and the shepherds and the wise men. Uh, rather, it's about his return in glory, his second coming. Advent is a season when historically and traditionally the church is focused on the return of Christ. But, but here in the first coming of Christ, we see pictures and models that prepare us uh, ourselves to be get ready for the second coming of Christ. Uh, this surprise uh, of faith, did, did it seem normal or, or rational or even sensible for Joseph to think that Mary was the one through whom God would enter the world? Well, no. Uh, all he had to go on was the word of the angel. Well, it's the same for us, isn't it? As Acts, uh, the book of Acts begins, uh, Jesus goes back into heaven. And as the disciples are standing there looking up into the sky, an angel comes to them and, and says, well, why are you standing there looking into the sky? This same Lord Jesus who you've seen go will return. 
He'll return in the same way. He'll come back on the clouds of heaven. Now, can you see any evidence of that in the world around you? As you get up every morning, make yourself a coffee, struggle through breakfast, get in the car, go to work. Is there any sign that Christ will return? No. Does it seem likely? Or if we're honest, not very a lot of the time. Again, perhaps you're new to Christian things. And it just seems a ridiculous claim. Okay, where's the science? Where's the evidence? What have we got? We've got the word of an angel now recorded in the pages of the Bible. But that's all Joseph had too. The word of an angel through a dream. We might be tempted to think it's easier for him. At least he's got the evidence of a pregnant Mary. He's got something he can see slowly over nine months. But actually, if you think about it, that, that's not at all a help to his faith. In some ways, it's almost a hindrance. Okay, there are easier explanations of pregnant teenagers than virgin births, than messiahs mm -hmm. coming in to the world. Now, Joseph had to trust God's word alone that this surprising way was how God was going to come into the world. God's son was going to arrive. Uh, we too, uh, we too. I need to trust God's word that Christ will return. It's so tempting to think, isn't it, that life just will trot on as normal. As I stand here, I can sort of look out of the window, more or less, uh, quiet streets on a Sunday morning. Uh, but most people, 750,000 people in Leeds, most people will get up and assume that one day will follow the next day, will follow the next day, will follow the next day. And the danger is... Uh, whether we're, we're, we're at the moment new to Christian things or even if we're inside the church, we, we behave like, like turkeys. Okay, this time of year, uh, many turkeys. Okay, children, I want you to imagine a turkey waking up this morning. A turkey will wake up and today will be just like yesterday. Uh, what do they do? Gobble. Uh, gobble, gobble, gobble. They'll have their seed for breakfast or whatever it is. They'll wander around for a little bit. And eventually they'll go to sleep at night, get up the next morning and the same thing will happen. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Uh, perhaps one turkey uh, gets wind of, of what's coming at Christmas time and begins to warn the others. Uh, I've heard, I've heard uh, that we're in trouble on the 25th and on the 25th that everything's going to change, everything's going to change. But then the scientific tur turkey comes around and says, look, where's the evidence for that? Show me scientifically that anything's going to be different than before. The historian turkey uh, comes along and says, look, we we've looked. We've looked back through our turkey records and yesterday was the same as the day before and the day before and the day before. Nothing is going to change. There is no evidence. So day follows day, follows day, follows day. Until, of course, Christmas comes, which is not a great day for turkeys. Uh, Jesus came into the world the first time and promised that he will come back. And when he comes back, that'll be it. Our fate, heaven or hell, eternity will be done and dusted, decided on that day. That is judgment day. For those who put their trust in him and come to him for forgiveness, it'll be a day of great glory, welcomed into heaven forever. For those who've ignored him, or who've lived like turkeys, well, it'll be a day of judgment. That God sends his word ahead of time in order that we might be ready. All you need to do is come to him. All you need to do is ask. He has come to rescue. That's what the angel says, isn't it? That you'll give his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He's come to forgive us. But now is the time to grab that forgiveness. And if you're a Christian, don't sleepwalk. Don't be a turkey. Uh, live your life in light of that coming. Uh, so we need to swallow the surprise of faith, but also put up with the shame of faith or the scandal 
uh, of faith. Imagine Joseph going down the synagogue uh, when it became obvious that, that Mary was pregnant. Uh, the winks and the nudges from his friends. Joseph, what have you been up to? No, says Joseph, it's, it's not me. I'm not the father. Uh, the crestfallen looks among his friends. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Joseph. What are you going to do? How are you going to get rid of her? Are you going to bring the law against her? Or are you going to put her away quietly? And he says, no, no, no. She's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And they just begin to look at him. Sorry, sorry, what, Joseph? Oh, it's all right. It's God's son. She's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Okay, Joseph. Of course she is. You can feel him blushing, can't you? You can feel his, his shame, his embarrassment, the cost to him of living faithfully under God's word. Following Jesus means for his people shame and scandal very often. Again, perhaps if you are a Christian, you know this already. Uh, you know that the, the cost uh, to you, uh, the, the way that, that, that your friends look at you as Joseph's friends would have looked at you. You, you really believe that? Uh, you believe a man walked on water, a man came back from the dead? You, you believe that one day everyone will be split in two, heaven and, and hell? You believe that now, in the 21st century? But, but you're so normal. You're educated, you've been to university. You're scientific, you're, you're medical, you're... How can you believe that? And again, you feel the colour rising in your cheeks. But that has always been the way. God doesn't act as we expect him to act. Christmas drives that home to us. He doesn't arrive in pomp and ceremony with power and glory. He arrives quietly, humbly, in a shameful way. And of course, his shameful entry into the world is matched by his shameful exit. Uh, where does this all head to? Where does the cradle lead to? Well, the cradle leads to the cross. Uh, where the Son of God, who's taken flesh and now grown up, is stripped naked, beaten, mocked, has a crown of thorns, a mocking crown of thorns thrust on his head. We wear paper crowns at Christmas to celebrate, but, but Christ wore a crown of humiliation and then nailed to a cross, slowly choking to death on his own blood. And what is that? Well, that's the reason he came. And that is the good news. That is the way he rescues us from our sins. Uh, he was put to shame. The cross is described as a scandal. In fact, our, our English word scandal is just a uh, stealing of a Greek word, a scandal. It is a, a stumbling block. It, it's a, it makes no sense. And yet that is where God is at work. The surprise of faith and the shame of faith shape our discipleship. And Joseph is a model uh, for us in both. So Joseph, the disciple. Uh, but see too, just as we close, Joseph, the dreamer. Joseph, the dreamer. Sometimes when you read the Bible, and particularly the story parts of the Bible, you can miss that the wood from the trees, as the saying goes. We get so sucked into the details uh, that we miss big picture what's going on. We miss the art of the story. And I think there is something going on here uh, with Joseph that, that we're meant to see. It's not always the case that the gospel writers or any of the Bible uh, authors, in fact, sort of stop and explain what they're doing. That's not the way stories work, is it? Uh, a number of years ago, I, I went to the cinema in, when I still lived in Derby and watched The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Children, many of you have seen that film, no doubt. And you know that in it, Aslan, the lion, gives his life in place of Edmund, uh, the boy who's gone over to the, the Wicked Witch. And Aslan is killed on the stone table. Uh, and a little while later, he comes back to life again. 
he rises again from the dead. And as I was sat in this, this cinema with a couple of friends, a voice came from about sort of four rows back. This woman said, well, I didn't see that coming. Okay, Aslan rising from the dead. And this woman was blown away. Oh, never saw that coming. But of course, you're meant to see it coming, aren't you? Because Aslan is a picture of Jesus. That's what one of the things C.S. Lewis is doing in that story. Here is the king, the royal figure, the king of beasts, the lion, giving his life uh, for other human beings. He dies so that Edmund would live. And then he rises again as Christ rose on the third day. Now, when you read the books, okay, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, or frankly, if you watch the film, you don't get C.S. Lewis putting a little kind of asterisk in saying, look, this is a bit like Jesus, isn't it? The director in the film doesn't have one, doesn't step on stage on the corner of the shot and say, hey, do you see how Aslan's a bit like Jesus? He died, he rose again. No, the story conveys the message. And that's what's going on here. What do we see with Joseph? We'll just listen to this description of Joseph. Okay, here is Joseph, the Bible character Joseph. God speaks to Joseph through dreams and only through dreams. Uh, when God speaks to others, uh, around this time, he, he speaks to them directly through angels. So Mary sees an angel. She's not asleep. She's awake. An angel comes to Mary. An angel comes to, to Zechariah. Uh, angels come to the shepherds and they're always awake. But Joseph is only ever spoken to in dreams. Four times, in fact, Joseph is spoken to in dreams. Uh, who is this Joseph? Uh, well, actually, if we'd read from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, uh, we'd get his family tree. Now, both Matthew and Luke give family trees of Jesus and therefore lead down to Joseph. And neither is trying to give every single relative. Neither of them are trying to give absolutely scientifically every sort of link in the chain backwards and backwards through the generations. They're making theological points. So they choose different relatives. It's a bit like saying today the Queen is a, is a daughter of Queen Victoria. Okay, Elizabeth is the daughter of Queen Victoria. That's true. There's a few links in the chain, but you know she is ultimately a daughter of Victoria. A bit like Joseph here in our passage is called a son of David. David wasn't his dad, but he's descended from David. That's just how writers wrote in those days. Now, in Luke's gospel, we read that Joseph is the son of a guy called Heli. But who is Joseph, the son of here? Well, in verse 16 of chapter one, Joseph is the son of Jacob. So we've got Joseph, the son of Jacob, uh, to whom God speaks in dreams. And what's Joseph's job? Well, Joseph's job is to protect the, the royal king. He looks after Mary while she's pregnant. And as the story goes on, we didn't read it, but, but you will probably know that Herod tries to kill all the babies. So God again speaks to Joseph in a dream and tells Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and go down to Egypt, to flee to Egypt. And after a while, God speaks to Joseph in a dream again and tells him to come out of Egypt, to come back home. And then the place Joseph goes to is a bit dangerous. So God speaks to him in a dream again and, and says, no, no, not there, go elsewhere. Until eventually they end up in Nazareth. We've got Joseph, who is spoken to in dreams, is the son of Jacob, uh, and who goes down to Egypt in order to protect, to protect the king who is to come. Now, you cannot read that story and not think of Joseph from Genesis, of whom all those things are also true. You know, Joseph, one of the 12 brothers, he also is only spoken to in dreams in the book of Genesis. His dad, too, is Jacob. Uh, he, too, goes down to Egypt. And we're told at the end of the story, the reason he's gone to Egypt is in order that he might save others. Or rather, God might save others through him, particularly Judah, his brother. 
Because it's not Joseph, Genesis Joseph, who is the ancestor of Jesus, but Judah. Judah is the royal line. Joseph is all about protecting Judah, making sure Judah, the king's line, will survive. So, so what's Matthew doing by making these parallels? Or more importantly, what's God doing by making these parallels? Well, one thing. Let me just choose one thing. By making us realise the two Josephs okay, are in parallel, he's letting us know what he's going to do through Joseph. Uh, what did the first Joseph, Genesis Joseph, what did he do? He provided bread for the world, didn't he? Do you remember, children, the way that he managed the famine? And we're told at the end of his story that he provided food, not just for, for Israel, God's people, but for all nations. Well, that is what this Joseph is going to do too. He is going to make sure bread for the world, the bread of life, comes into the world and goes not just to the Israelites, but goes to all nations, the true bread of life, Jesus. That's why Jesus is laid in a manger, we're told several times in Luke's Gospel. It's like Luke is hammering the thing home, manger, manger, manger. God has come down to be food for us. God hasn't come down because he's hungry. He doesn't need to eat from us. He's not come down to take, in other words, but to give. And he's come to give his life in order to save us from sin. Verse 21 again, she will bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus has come in order that our sin might be defeated. And there's no limits on the ways that Jesus is going to defeat our sin. Uh, it's not specified here. Some of you at the moment will feel crushed by the guilt of sin. Well, Jesus is the answer. <laughs> Pays for that guilt. Some of you will be, be strangled at the moment by the power of sin, the entanglement of sin. Well, Jesus is the answer. He will save you from that entanglement. Some of you are terrified by the punishment of sin. You know the wrath that is to come. Jesus will save you from the punishment of sin. He has come to give, uh, to give you righteousness, to clothe you with his righteous life in order that God the Father might look on you and say, you too are my beloved son or daughter. With you I'm well pleased. He's come to break the power of sin so that slowly as he gives the Holy Spirit to you, he can transform you and set you free from the besetting sins that entangle you. And ultimately he will complete that work when he returns. And he himself on the cross has taken the punishment for sin. Everything you've done wrong this week, the things that you've done, said, thought, the things you failed to do, think and say, well, they were punished on the cross in Jesus. So if you come to him, sin is no longer going to defeat you. He will save you from his sins. He has come to give, not to get. Jesus gains nothing by coming to earth. Uh, he lacked nothing before and ultimately he gains nothing really from his saving work. But he has come to give, to be food, to be bread. Joseph lets us know, points us to the fact that Christ is all we need. Do you feel you lack at the moment? Perhaps you're a Christian and, and you wonder what the key is to, to dealing with the problems in your life at the moment. If only there was a course or, or a book or a counsellor or, or an online sermon or, or just something that would unlock the key to my problems. You have all you need in the cradle, in the manger of Bethlehem. God has become like you. He has taken on your flesh. He's become a man of sorrows. He knows what it is to weep, to be abandoned. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to mourn, to grieve, to be lonely. 
and therefore all the resources you need to deal with sin and its ruinous consequences are found in him. That is the first thing that Christmas tells us. And therefore, if you want that freedom, go to him. He has come for you. Joseph, the disciple who bears the shame, the scorn and the scandal, because ultimately Joseph the dreamer knows that in Christ all his problems are solved. In Christ all his hope is found. And in Christ, even in the cradle, his future is totally secure. Let's pray. Father, we praise you uh, that you are a God of grace. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came down not to take but to give, and not to eat but to feed. And so we ask as we battle with sin, as we at times stumble, as we try to believe faithfully, as we cope with the shame and scandal of being your followers, we pray that you would feed us today and this week. Would we draw all our strength from you until that great day when you return? Lift our heads to know that you are returning, you are coming, and that in you our hope is secure. For we ask in your own name. Amen.